0: Welcome back to Fathoms, and Enneagram podcast. We're glad that you've joined us for this very special conversation. I'm particularly excited about this conversation because we're talking today with one of my favorite creatives and thinkers, singer-songwriters, song doula, you name it, this guy does it. (laughs) In the creative world, he's just really one of my favorite thinkers. And um, so we have Andy Squires with us today. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for being here.
1: Hey, It's great to be here thanks is is song doula actually a thing
0: i mean in my mind it is i don't know
1: (laughs) all right all right andy what what what's your artist name or is it just andy squires yeah
2: johnny cash was taken so i'm just sticking (laughs) with andy squires
3: yeah
1: that's a really Um, cool last name though what's uh do you know origin of it
2: um i mean it's it's like western european mongrel you know it's scotch irish um, but there, there are squires, you know, as far south as Portugal, and um, but it's mainly Irish, English, um, and you'll you'll typically see it in the states with an I, but the Y is the hmm. the Y is the original middle Middle English spelling.
1: Just just to give some context for for the listeners of why we are having you on is, and I mentioned this in when we were conversing over email of um, sensing this undercurrent in your work of trying to get underneath the thing to be subversive within this Christian, the Christian community that you're a part of and how that applies to our season theme of dynamics of personhood is in the process of uh, developing Identities and communities and groups and belonging. Oftentimes and inevitably, we will run up against things that don't work, that mm-hmm. that feel inauthentic, that feel um, not right. And what we saw in your work is this kind of relentless sort of no, no, no. Let's redefine this. Let's actually push further into it and not just be like, oh, that doesn't work. Throw the baby out with the bathwater. So, I guess that's that's what we're trying to do is inevitably in these identities and labels that we, when we inherit or we enter into, there's going to be these moments where we need to challenge it. And I think that's what this, this episode is hoping to do is what, what do we do? How do we do it gracefully and with compassion and openness? So I guess in context of that, how would, why would you say that people most often engage your work?
2: Well, Um, you know, it's really important for artists to understand what they're carrying, carrying, what their voice is. You know, there's, I I believe there's vocational callings on individual people. And that's typically what I'm looking for in an artist. I'm looking for somebody to surprise me, to say something in a different way that I've not heard before. And I realize that that's not the way everybody's wired, but that is the way I'm wired. So, I mean, not to make this conversation about Christian art, but just by the virtue of what I do artistically, I find myself in the role of a critic or somebody who's offering a healthy critique within my world, that faith community. And... And so, so what that means is that I don't have a massive audience. It's not like I'm making art that's so accessible that everybody loves it. And that's not to say that I'm I'm better than like a, a a pop star. It's just what I do is it sits a little differently. So a lot of times people hear what I do and they're 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 put off by it. They it it either doesn't make any sense to them or it's a little bit too hard to hear maybe but what i have discovered is that people do eventually uh if they happen to stumble across my work the connecting is what they hear is they hear an insistence upon uh saying what what really is rather than saying The way things are not Mm -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: so so um, i've never been afraid i don't know i don't know why this is the case but i've never been afraid to talk about things in in the context of the church where it seems like in most instances uh we don't talk about things and and i and i actually think maybe that's you know, there's different worlds, at least in the world of art, I think there's more potential or maybe more of an appetite for things of a grittier nature.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I, I think when, when people kind of buy into what I do, it's because they've connected at least something that I've talked about. Might their Their reality might not be exactly the same, but they can at least feel the universal ache in it.
1: So... Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing is like the difference between propaganda and art. Right. Mm-hmm. Where we're seeking after beauty and, and, and grittiness, mm-hmm. as, you, as you put it, is, is much more the, uh, the avenue of art. Where getting someone to do something or to be something and creating from that place creates a whole different vibe that feels a little icky sometimes. Mm-hmm.
0: When you said universal ache, you know, I think living in this age of deconstruction, as I'm really beginning my life and raising my family and in that stage of life, there's, this, there's been this question in me of living in this space of deconstructionism. Do I really have to tear everything down? Do I really have to start from scratch and like figure all of this, gestures broadly, do I have to figure out this whole thing by myself? Or is there some kind of a current that I can step into if I'm willing, you know, to fight the tides a little bit, to kind of wrestle a little bit? Could I find something and uncover something beautiful that I could live into? Maybe there's a project already happening that I could somehow be a part of. And it's been so disheartening to be a part of projects that have turned abusive or toxic. And that that's where this comes from, is this desire to just head out the back door or to tear the whole thing down. And um, what I've really seen in your work is this permission to stay in the hard spaces and to turn everything over and kind of see, see what's there really underneath at the bottom of it all. Because otherwise there's a lot of wandering that happens. But I think that there's a community of people that have been able to find each other in your work to say like, we're not quite ready to run away we're not quite ready to just bring in the bulldozers either, you know?
2: There's no end to deconstructionism. I think deconstruction is fine. And I think, I think that people's faith progress, it's expanded when we, we deal with the hard questions of faith and philosophy and beyond. But what I'm hearing from a lot of different places is that if you stay within the current frameworks of let's just say for instance American evangelical Christianity then you're not doing or doing it right mm-hmm. and i i just would say nobody. I mean, if we were going to use the most prominent interpretive lens within modern culture, you would have to say it was skepticism. And I think you would need to apply a healthy dose of that skepticism to that claim. My work, I'm not an apologist. I don't work in the realm of debate. I don't, I'm don't. i not really interested in fighting anybody on these, these topics. But I would say that that would be, those would be the, the qualms that I have would be, if you're asking me to throw out 2,000 years of church tradition and belief, like if you can't at least give me a year or two <laughs> to test the validity of your claims without calling me, just saying that I'm on the wrong side of history, all of a sudden, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
2: I just think that's a huge um well it's a philosophical issue i mean i don't know i just think all of this stuff needs to move at a lot slower pace than it than it actually is because people are making massive choices with their lives i i would say in fairly well i mean the bible says in the new testament you know walk circumspectly i think that's this is a really great way of being like have all the thoughts that you want, but move slowly mm-hmm. move slowly in whatever direction just move slowly because smarter people than all of us on this podcast have come to you know a wide variety of differing conclusions
3: so and if I'm hearing you correctly um, I want to try and get clear at least in my brain and maybe if uh, for some other potential listeners if anyone is thinking at all like me um. You're, you're kind of naming, you know, well, let me say this, back up just briefly, that some of the ways that I've seen the value of your work is that you kind of make faith a bit more authentic and human so the people don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I kind of hear you saying that as well, um, just now. Um, and yeah, by naming the difficult truth, the humanity that happens within your religion, nobody's kind of perfect. And, and I'm just, I'm curious though, when you're, your specific sect or the version of the church that you're in, if and when that becomes too unhealthy for you to stay, um, you know, like I, I'm all for figuring out how to redeem and reclaim, you know, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think it's it requires a lot of maturity and a lot of healing to do that. But yeah, what what about the the folks in in which um, it's it's no longer actually a safe place to stay? You know what I mean?
2: Yes. And this is such a hard, this is so real. This is such a tough question. Um, Because I do recognize that I'm speaking from a place of being in a place that I really love. Like I truly love the church I'm a part of. I truly love the community of people that I'm in. So it's like much easier for me to say the things that I'm saying. Um, But I... Here here's what I want to here's what I want to challenge in my own self first of all is this and I, and I I would want to add a caveat first is that boundaries are the most important thing or a very important thing for human thriving like the boundary of my marriage vows with my wife they keep us in a healthy relationship with each other so I'm I'm not saying that boundaries don't matter for what I'm about to say. So if, if somebody finds themselves in an actual relationship where things are abusive in the physical sense or like verbal sense, it's like, by all means, don't listen to anything that I'm about to say. But I, I, I'm, I'm Gen X, first generation latchkey kid, the product of my parents' divorce early on when I was five years old. And, and I have a great relationship with both my dad and my mom, and I love both my, my step-parents very much. So even, even in the aftermath of my folks' divorce, I would say there was a lot of good things that happened as a result of it. Um, but what's so fascinating, and especially in talking to my mom over the years, she was the one who initially left the marriage. And um, it was like well, the way she describes it is that the only thing that she could imagine was that the solution was in the leaving. So the limits of her imagination dictated to her the only viable process. Uh, and, and, and it's actually one that she deeply regrets, but I'm not saying that that's the case for everybody. I mean, there's a million different divorce stories, right? But I'm just saying we have to at least consider that sometimes our imaginations are limited by the, whatever the massive theme is within our culture, whatever the zeitgeist is, whatever the spirit of the age is. We have to at least tell ourselves the truth that our imagination has been shaped by that, and I would say that, it, it, especially in this moment, that leaving and and cutting off from broken people is the first instinct. It's the initial instinct, and I would say that it is very possible. And I actually see this in in some of the younger. Gen Zers, it's like all of a sudden nobody has any friends because everybody is cutting off from all toxic relationships or all toxic human beings. But come to find out, all human beings have a degree or a level of hypocrisy, of brokenness, yeah. mm-hmm. of of like inability to relate mm-hmm. without awkwardness to another. So if we're saying to people, man, healthy boundaries is is good, and sometimes you need to draw uh, a boundary so that you're not um, excessively and perpetually injured by another human being, well, that's one thing. But if we're saying to people that the only path forward in building wholeness within our communities is to cut off from each other, well, I mean then what we're really doing is building one isolated individual after another. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like we have to make a commitment to enduring at least some level of brokenness in the people that we're walking with Mm -hmm. because aren't we all just meeting each other at some point in our sanctification story, or our redemption story, or whatever, however you want to call that, it's like, man, we're all we're all meeting each other at some point in the process, okay. and you know, to quote the bumper sticker, you know, <laughs> God ain't through with me yet, you know. <laughs>
3: mm. Yeah, yeah. It, I hear you saying it's it is considerably easier to just up and peace out when things get hard. But if you're really up for um, the life of of depth and growth and 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 healing and love, then you're 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 up for facing uh, the difficulty that is involved in every real relationship.
2: Yeah, yeah it's a commitment to pain, baby. <laughs> hmm hmm
3: And I I,
1: you, I think what you're outlining is honestly what what topic keeps him coming up in this season is acknowledging and complexifying the identities, labels and stories and experiences we've all had individually yes. um, and realizing that we're going to inevitably bump up to something that doesn't match how we mm-hmm. perceive ourselves or the world. And yeah, completely agree with the thing right now is to just keep cutting off limbs until I am, quote, completely safe and everything is OK in the world. and. I I don't know, like it's, we live in, on this rock hurtling through space, like it's, it's, it's chaos. It's inherently wildly chaotic. And the idea that we have the ability to control everything is, is just ridiculous. Mm. And the more we can find our way into personal resilience and not only cutting off stop cutting off other people but stop cutting off parts of ourselves um, in order to actually step into a place of actual unity instead of just the uniformity and so i i feel like this is a there's so much more to be said about this conversation on many different levels but what, what i'd love to move us into is part another reason why we had you on this podcast is you uh In a couple of posts, you kind of critiqued self-help community, Enneagram community, and we think it's just insanely important for all of us, collectively, and especially the Enneagram community, to actually ask the question, how are we being perceived? How are we being seen? And if we're not brave enough to ask those questions and receive proper critique, whether they be intentional or non-intentional, then we're not actually doing the good hard work of of getting into the messiness of being human and our blind spots and so i'd love to enter into this with a state of curiosity and openness because we want to hear from your perspective what do you see are the the pitfalls the blind spots for the self-help community enneagram community and, and the like
2: yeah i this is just full disclosure i feel like this is the part of the conversation where i feel the least qualified to talk uh just because i'm not i'm not like extremely well versed in enneagram stuff but i uh, you know you can't live in this world anymore without having at least some working knowledge of it (laughs) so but maybe maybe not to zone in on the particularities of the enneagram uh, and, and and just maybe start with offering um, not, I don't think critiques the right word, but just an observation is mm-hmm. that any, it, what, what, I, what I've realized is that, no, I haven't realized this. I've only observed this. So it's just an observation. But I, I think that when, when people become experts at something so whether they, they go to university, they become therapists of one kind or another, anything in the social sciences, or then, then you have a, you know, the, the pop psychology world of, um, you know, that exists, that's so prominent. I've, I think the thing that strikes me the most is how when we have a tool in our tool bag, all of a sudden, everything turns into a nail to hit. And um, I mean, that's a crass and clunky metaphor, but-
1: One we've I've, used several times on the podcast, actually. Yeah,
2: well, it, it, it feels as though the hardest thing for any type of human being, whether they're educated or uneducated, is to constantly remain aware of their own bias. So, so if if you happen to be a scientist and the social scientist of one kind or another, it's really hard to like put your master's degree or your PhD up on the shelf and go, well, this is just uh, this is just my side hustle and this is something that I occasionally bring in front of my eyes to view the world through. It's like no, it it kind of becomes your whole world, you know. And um, so, and, and it, these things are super helpful. I. I think that I'm so grateful for mental health professionals the world over that are actually helping folks work through the practical aspects of their inner lives. But the thing that maybe does get exhausting is that that filter or that interpretive lens is, it turns into the only thing that we see the world through. We only see other people through that lens maybe it's not dangerous but it's definitely boring (laughs) you know it's it's like i I saw leonard cohen say this the other day because i i've thought a lot about this with regards to art making um i saw leonard cohen saying that the job of the artist and this this will sound really weird with re- in in terms of where we are at this point in history but he would say it's the job of the artist to avoid political slogans at all costs and he he talks about this the tyranny of the slogan and he he's in this interview he's talking about how the artists are looking for language that goes beyond the slogans that the ideologues have what's the word it's distilled down like like re- reductionist language mm. typically turns into ideology mm. and and the work of artists is to challenge the clarity of the ideologues and you know in in the world of book selling in the world of especially with regards to pop psychology and and pop self-help stuff. Man, clarity is king. It's it's like Christian music. It's like the fastest way to get Mm -hmm. your song on K-Love Radio is to say the least amount, but in the clearest way. And I I I feel like the in our attempts to boil down the complexity of the human experience into some chapters in a book, we know that wins in the realm of commerce. But the trick is that we while those things may be helpful, we we maybe put too much stock in them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's it's I'm not saying we shouldn't put any stock into them. I'm saying they only belong in their rightful place.
3: Uh what I hear you saying um I think is that you don't have as much issue with certain tools or modalities or political slogans as much as how the tool is being held and used. And so it's more the issue of the maturity of the person.
2: Yeah, and maybe not even the how, but maybe the, um, the onslaught that happens. So, so it's, it's not that well well, I, I remember in 2017, 2018, I did a tour through the med- Midwest. I, I think I probably played like 20 shows in a row. every single night on this sh- this tour, somebody wanted to talk to me about the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I was just fascinated by that. I was like, wow, this is this is kind of blowing my mind because mm. I don't think that these places were connected. I think it just happened to be. All-encompassing, this thing was coming at us like a tidal wave, and and so when I when I notice that all of a sudden people are basing so much of their thoughts, their thought energy into systems of thinking like this, it makes me have a little pause. Like you know, first I don't I don't trust crowd think. I don't trust group think and um and that that's just a personality trait that's just it must make me an enneagram something like an enneagram eight or something <laughs> like that you
3: know <laughs> in, a, in a lot of ways the rise in popularity of the enneagram was it felt very similar to like um the next social media app that became huge you know and it got used in the same way like everybody's mm-hmm. just getting on it and using it and you know and my my uh my one of my bents is um you know there's there's nothing in and of there's nothing created in and of itself that is um inherently wrong or bad or or maybe even good but a person's hands in which that thing is placed that that distorts that thing you know obviously you know things can be created more specifically to leverage people's flaws and and wounds and things but, but yeah the enneagram anything Powerful, I would say, especially has the potential to be more so distorted, um, and I think the enneagram is one of those things, for sure.
0: Yeah, you know, and I don't think that there's any of us using this tool that's using it perfectly, or
3: besides us.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah,
0: you know, I just <laughs> I I'm really fascinated. Um, by the critique of the Enneagram and I have a few friends who are skeptical, a few family members who are skeptical and I need people like that in my life to keep me, if I'm going to be using this tool, to keep me using it in a humble way, in a, like you mentioned earlier, moving forward with something. If you're gonna move forward, move slowly, like be wise, be cautious, keep in mind the, that the care of the people that you're with is of the most value. And so, yeah, I don't think any of us are really, we're all kind of figuring it out together, especially those of us coming into it at the peak of its popularity. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of wisdom we need.
2: And, I, and I would I wanna add this, cause I, I believe that this is a practical application of what we're talking about. So I've been in faith spaces where nobody would consider therapy as a viable solution to somebody's issue. But what I'm now currently finding is faith spaces where the only viable solution is therapy. Mm-hmm. And what I find so fascinating about that is that we have such an inability to hold multiple things as possibilities in our healing paths. And I, I, my hope is that at least folks within the faith circle could consider therapy, the Enneagram, or what, whatever, these, these different things that uh, are obviously helpful to human beings in maybe not discovering who they are, but maybe kind of like mapping out their inner worlds, yeah? But then I, I've recently encountered some some in the faith realm who like all of a sudden therapy is their new totem. Therapy is their new rain dance. Therapy mm-hmm. is their new, and I and I'll say this, coming from a charismatic Pentecostal background, we just thought our ways of doing things, that like like our worship and our demonstrativeness was like the silver bullet. We just applied it to everything. This is the cure all. God's presence is the cure all. I mean, you know, and 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 I I I just find that exact attitude. In this new pop psychology world where it's like now therapy is, it's the silver bullet. And I just know too many people who have been going to therapy for years and years and mm. remain devout assholes. And it's like, you know, it's like, it's like, great. It's fantastic that you're doing mm-hmm. this. I'm so happy for you. But this is not what you think it is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a part of a larger solution.
0: Mm.
2: So I think I may be being completely unhelpful today on this interview. <laughs> I'm not sure. but <laughs> No,
1: I think it's actually that you are aware of the Enneagram, but still on the outskort, outskirts? <laughs> outskirts is actually a benefit, not a bug because a lot of what you're saying is things that we've been pounding into our episodes over the past four seasons, Mm. um, in in one way or the other. And I I think it just, it comes, comes out differently when someone who thinks about things deeply (laughs) can still name the problem with it and Mm. isn't deep in the system. And as you're talking, it just, it, made me think of like a corollary to like diet culture of like Atkins, keto, uh, raw vegan, like all these sort of things. It's like, I just want one thing, a a pill to fix all my problems. And it's like, turns out everyone has a lot of different issues and needs different things based on a ton of different, uh, honestly, it's, it's almost too complex to figure it all out sometimes there's so many different things out there. And if if you tried to do every health thing out there that is on the internet, you would have no time in the day to do anything else. And I think that's, that's where this sort of pop psychology and pop Enneagram stuff comes from is just, I just want the one thing that's going to fix me. And I think that's, that's the exact wrong way of approaching what the Enneagram is there for. we we talk on, on this podcast about how it's enneagram is much less of a noun and more of a verb where it's not so much about who you are and your identities and your labels, but it's more naming the habitual patterns that you've done for the majority of your life and how they are both helpful and hurtful, how they're ad- adaptive in certain situations and maladaptive in other situations and, and allowing yourself to be a process rather than a fixed mm-hmm. identity. And that's at least as you're talking, that's what I'm hearing is what you're naming as like the problem as someone who's kind of on the outside looking and it's like, y'all should look at that. Is that does that mirror kind of what you're saying? Feel free to push back.
2: No, I that's I think that's a really concise, accurate conclusion. All the many words that I just spewed out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Also, you know, one one of the features of your work, Andy, is contentment, and I think I I hear that in what Creek is saying too. Like that, we have Mm -hmm. a smorgasbord of choices, you know, at our fingertips. Things that what? (laughs) Yeah, that's
1: that's such a good word, smorgasbord. Smorgasbord.
0: And at some point, can we just stop and look at our lives and find what's beautiful right now? That is another thing I really, I really appreciate about your work is the call to just return to observation of what is. And we are always kind of in that grind of what we could be and what we should be and exponential growth and healing even. And and those are great things. Growth is great. Healing is necessary to break destructive patterns in our families Mm -hmm. and in our, in our homes and in our friendships, our society but there also has to be space to cultivate contentment and to bring forward what, what is good right now.
2: Yeah. I apologize for this, but I keep, I keep connecting things back to my charismatic upbringing, but it's, it really works as a metaphor for a lot of these Mm -hmm. things. But in, in our world, we use a word breakthrough. There's always this breakthrough of some kind or another that we're vying for. So it can be a breakthrough that you're looking for in physical healing, or it could be a breakthrough of of a financial prayer request that you need some money help in. And you're always looking for this solution. And then we would have these spiritual practices that we would do that we at least told ourselves would facilitate these outcomes. And so, it was always emphasized to me that you have a problem and and God is there as the problem solver. You can hear it in our music. You can hear it in our sermons. This is the way we talk about God. And I'm not denying that God answers prayer or I'm not saying he is careless about our lives. I believe with all my heart that he actually cares about every area of our life. But I realized somewhere along the line that this project of dealing with all of these issues was like whipping us into a constant frenzy. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that that is really similar in this realm of mental health, inner working mm-hmm. stuff. It's like, it's, it's really, can be really good, but sometimes we get the idea that it's possible to get rid of all of mm-hmm. our humanity. It's like, it's like somewhere in mm-hmm. the back of their mo- our minds, we're waiting for this day when we unlock the mystery of this life and and all of our brokenness goes mm-hmm. away <laughs> and we no longer have worry or anxiety, mm-hmm. I would just like to say to people everywhere that that is never going to happen. Mm-hmm. You are never going to manage away your humanity, nor do I think that God wants us to. I mean, I, I actually, I I feel like some of the, the happiest I've become is through this this like awareness that God revealed himself in the incarnation, like there's a there's a joy that God found in being human. It's like it's our humanity is not a design flaw, it's it's the feature, right? And so maybe as we are growing in our lives you know because like in christian terms we want to grow as disciples we want to we want to grow in the ways of jesus what does that mean we want to be more patient we want to we want to go uh be kinder more gracious less violent less lustful less you know there's these these things that we want to do we want to act justly we want to have mercy but it's also good that we tell ourselves we're probably not going to be <laughs> angelic, and I think that I think there's actually a grace that comes to us when we buy or
3: own the truth of that. Um, you were alluding to before we started the recording. What it sounds like you're saying now: the myth of the balanced life. Yeah, versus kind of this more realistic, resilient life. Because mm-hmm. I, uh, my sense is, and lots of people, lots of um, philosophers, theologians say, have said this before, but as we grow, as as our awareness or as our consciousness increases, however you want to name that, it's not that life really becomes less intense. Actually, the more open our heart gets, the more intensely we feel things. Yes. But our reactivity maybe is what Lessons and our responsiveness to that, how we are, how we hold that, how we are with the intensity of life and the pain of life can change. Mm -hmm. Uh, I
2: love, I love that word resilience. The word that I've also heard some mental health folks use recently, which I love. I've never heard it until recently, but integration. Like mm -hmm. it's like you 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 have you're you're able to integrate all Mm -hmm. of these different realities into your life and you, it, it's like, somebody was telling me about the the martial arts, uh, Jiu is more, it more has to do with um, not destroying your enemy, but kind of like, blocking away the force, the intensity of life. And uh, I, I find that I do that through, you know, kind of just getting up every day and going, you know, I still have some bad habits. I drink t- I, d- I get up and I look at my phone and I drink two cups of coffee before I get up to do anything. Like that's a terrible habit. You know, I could be so much more productive if I didn't do that. And then finally a lo- somewhere along the line I'm like, uh, I'm too old. I'm turning 50 this year. I'm just going to do this. <laughs> 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 you know what I mean? But yeah, but yeah. that's that's different than you know, if 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 I were drinking a a pint of vodka every night, well, that would be something that I should really mm-hmm. work to get a get rid of. But may, maybe it's maybe what I'm really saying is like, pick your battles. Yeah, absolutely.
3: You know, mm. yeah. So kind of transitioning us here uh, into maybe a, a third uh, and final act. You have I will I will name that you have been consistent in this in your presence with us as you are. Um. Online, and I appreciate that. I think anybody that is showing up consistently in different spaces is someone I can I can trust. So I appreciate that, and I and I'll say the thing that I that you've been naming here, but in a delicate and respectful and um, compassionate way, is your subversive nature, and and uh, yeah, that's something that we wanted to get some some clarity on, maybe for our listeners, but for ourselves, is where what what you think about. Um, kind of the delineation between when subversiveness um, or or the diver- subversiveness versus um, uh, aggression, you know when when you're overdoing it for you know for subversiveness for subversiveness sake, or let's tell the truth because that's what needs to happen right now. where Where in your mind, how, how do you how do you work that out? How do you know where you are in that sometimes?
2: The subversiveness of my work, is, is not a tactic in the sense that I'm waking up and going, you know what I really want to do is subvert a whole lot of people's reality with my words. <laughs> I think the thing that I've really done well, and then even consistently, as you've just described, is that I've decided to just be myself. So, of course, that has results connected to it you know it's but i think that's okay like i don't think that people or artists or creatives are are called to be everybody's cup of tea i think i think there's a real joy in being released from that expectation that you have to have a massive audience or you have to be in in order to be important or significant that you have to be super well known i mean i'm i'm not well known i a few i have a few people who like what i do and i'm super thankful for that um and it, it allows me to continue on with my work and so but to answer your question about the difference between being subversive and aggressive is that i think at least in the world of social media you could very much and we've seen this you could build a platform by being shocking or excessive or saying the most extreme thing for the sake of just generating energy around what you're doing so if you're if we're talking about a political situation if you're extreme right or extreme left you'll get the lovers and the haters involved mm-hmm. in your conversation so that is definitely something i never want to do i don't want to that to me feels like selling one's soul
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um and and i and i make a living at this so i don't want to pretend like i'm everything that i do is altruistic like i try to make beautiful things to woo people persuade people but also i want them to buy my books right mm-hmm. so there's i need to be honest with the the commerce side of this piece I, I'm not working to be less known. I'm I'm working to have more people exposed to what I do because I think it has like philosophical and religious value. I think there's the value in the art itself. It's beautiful, but also because I need to make a living, right? But I I am very much thrilled with the notion that my work is subversive. Like that excites the hell out of me like i don't know why that is it's just i think it's how i'm wired you know i mean the i just i love being in that place where um i can just look i can walk into a situation like i mean I'll, i'll tell you this story this is a cute little anecdote i i was in nashville a while back and I walked into a, a studio where a really famous Christian artist is having a song produced. And um, I'm with some friends, and they're gonna do background vocals on this track. So I I'm like they invite me in, and and I hear the song, and I just don't have a good poker face. All I can think is, what in the hail? is this like this is so bad that you know i mean my my brain starts melting down because i realize i'm in the like the bowels of the christian music industry and i can't figure out if they know exactly what they're doing or if everybody is just telling themselves lies and like loving it right and so i don't i don't (laughs) drop any truth bombs in the room because i'm just like i don't want to be that guy but man Coming out of that room and processing yeah. with some friends, I feel very comfortable just being like, oh, "Guys, that just that breaks my heart." And here's why, you yeah. know. And so a lot of a lot of this this stuff that I do, Wendell Berry talks about. He says he says this. He says, "Well, he's got that famous poem that only an impeded stream sings." So. It's, it's those rocks, those boulders, those challenges in the middle of the river that make the, the river have any noise at all. So the practical implication of that is that every time I'm at a point of ang- uh, anguish, like when I'm, I am being confronted with a reality that I cannot bear, that is my invitation to enter into my actual vocation. And, and so a wise builder or a wise artisan doesn't vandalize this, that studio or write an op-ed or a blog post about how terrible these people are who are making Christian music. Like, no, because first of all, these are all really good people. They're working in their industry, making a living for their families. Mm-hmm. Somebody is obviously liking this music or else they wouldn't make it. So mm-hmm. who am I to judge all those people that are listening to that music? But, but maybe I'm just a little bit of salt on the platter. And maybe maybe I'm like a ballast or something. Like there's got to be at least somebody out there who is saying or, or singing or writing kind of like from another perspective about life faith god the world and so i don't know if i answered your question there but <laughs> maybe there was an answer somewhere yeah there.
1: again i what i what i'm what i'm gathering is the the aggressiveness comes from just critiquing without providing an alternative in my own life the i i, also, I in conversations, when it comes to anything of depth, um, I I end up finding myself automatically on the other side of the argument, regardless of where I actually stand, just because it's, this is, this is going to make it a much more interesting conversation because there's actually something to talk about. Then we agree. Great. Cool. Moving on. But also because My experience in my in my past is like completely buying into something and protecting it at all Mm. costs and then realizing, oh, my gosh, there's a whole nother infinite amount of perspectives that I haven't accounted for and how terrifying that was to lose. But then since then, the the joy that I've found constantly complexifying an issue because it gets you further into the truth and further into the inherent contradiction of reality, in, in, at least in my perspective. Um, yeah. And so, to me, that's I'm, I'm trying to mirror back what I'm what I'm hearing, and also input my own sort of view on yeah. how 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 to be subversive versus aggressive. Mm-hmm. I'm never interested in being aggressive. I'm always interested in being subversive.
2: And and I I, I will say this for myself is that I I I expand and contract continually expand Mm -hmm. contract expand contract and so i have to center myself in a small quiet life so that to me is the only way i can remain true to my actual work but my so if i have my outward facing writing and it's bombastic and it's it's confrontive and disruptive and all of those things and hopefully beautiful I as a human being I can't live there man I can't I can't live in the realm of complexity I have to go play with my grandkids I have to go walk out in the trees with my wife I have to look at the dirt I have to go to church with with the old people who don't think in my terms at all I need to be yeah. with those those people and that's the stuff that keeps me like not just humble, but like grounded to reality mm-hmm. because as smart as I maybe think I am, it's like, I'm never going to be so smart that I can live outside of community or live outside of the relationships mm-hmm. of my wife and my kids and grandkids. And and so I, I, I have found that that's the way to sustainability is like Go out into the wilderness and and make all the claims and challenges that you want, but don't live out there permanently. You have to come back in to the frameworks of those relationships that you've invested in in your life or who have invested in you.
1: Because that's where like, you actually get to test the
2: things that you've found. It's where you get, it's where you get to live out all your brilliant theories.
3: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love that. I really appreciate what you said earlier. Um, just a one-liner about how you decided to just be yourself, and that is what I, from my vantage point, what I see you doing. What why people are probably drawn to you because it's naming um, an aspect of everyone uh, that they. I want what he's doing. I want. I, I want to be that way. I, I'm. I'm just curious, like on a practical level. Um, I'm curious if there's like a a, uh, any things that come to mind to you for what it means and how we become, (laughs) like you said, just become. I'm just myself. How do we? How is it that you did that? How is it that you um, do that every day? Uh,
2: Well, I stopped trying
3: to cure my past, and I just
2: I just dove straight into it, like. Okay so sometimes I wonder like I, I really do feel like I don't belong anywhere because I I mean you guys can probably diagnose this but I I'm really good at being everywhere but I don't feel like I 100% belong anywhere
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I think that that's the product of... Well, this is funny. My wife and I, Amy and I, we've been married for 29 years, okay? I my parents divorced when I was 5, and by the time I was 18, I had lived in 27 different houses. Oh, wow. A, Amy's parents were married and she lived in the same exact house her entire life until she married <laughs> me and we moved we moved away. So we come from vastly different backgrounds. And and then she was raised Baptist, and I was raised charismatic. So that was different too. Like everything wild and dangerous and unstable is in my world. And everything like stable and predictable and you can set your watch by is in her world. (laughs) So we've got these two people that just like totally attracted to each other, but really it made no sense whatsoever so i'm i'm saying all that to say that i've been mystified by my entire life from childhood on and wondering like i i don't know exactly how god does things i don't pretend to know if he's in control or if he's not in control i don't i don't have any certainty on the mechanics of how all this works But I do trust that God is working all things together. I really do trust that. As as a Christian believer, that's one of the things that I'm counting on that. And so in trusting that view, it really allows me to embrace the story of my life, the parents that I had, however broken they may or may have not been. Just all of the weird different twists and turns that my life threw at me, I'm trusting that they've actually led me to being who I am in this conversation right now. So maybe at the bedrock of feeling comfortable in my own skin is just the unadulterated belief that my life is totally meaningful and it's really important that I am who I am like believing that not that I'm like the famous instagram influencer or this guy over here who's doing his life this way like but really owning my life and and um saying thank you lord like thank you for making me this way and i don't know i I think that's probably not been a hundred percent like something I've done on purpose, but somewhere along the line, I grabbed a hold of that. And, and just knowing like, I mean, I mean, when I was in high school or middle school, I had red hair, freckles, glasses, braces. I was skinny. I, I mean, I had like no reason to have confidence. Like, in terms of like the way the world views things, it was like everything was stacked against me, you know? And I went to the Pentecostal church down the street. So it's like, <laughs> I mean, just destined to fail, right? But I think, I think just kind of like uh, deciding to be okay with all of that stuff was really the beginning of experiencing the goodness of being. Of my own humanity you know i i don't believe i don't believe that every single person is totally depraved and that there's you know we're just all walking around as manifestations of evil that god is enduring and i just don't live from that world view so that's good <laughs> i just have a lot of like love and excitement just about being alive you know yeah
1: yeah and and what i'm hearing is this this journey of of being you is is less about is more about learning how to deeply experience what's happening and being curious about what's happening and less about trying to figure out the ultimate you that is the yeah. the, the youest you that you could you um, yeah. and a basic trust yeah as we're kind of uh, wrapping up here one just thanks for showing up and i i know this was uh this was a different episode than really we've ever done and we actually and it's i'm really happy with it so thank you so much
2: for, oh, for joining. it's a pleasure um, great pleasure this is so fun
1: yeah and if you could just uh drop your how people can interact with you
2: yeah on all the social media stuff instagram twitter facebook you can whatever you're poison of choices you can just <laughs> type in my name andy squires s-q-u-y-r-e-s and you can find me there
0: download is music
2: yeah oh yes very good
1: and how can people find you on uh, aol messenger <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> awesome oh thanks andy we really appreciate it
2: yeah, thank you oh, you're so welcome yeah
1: After we finished recording, we asked Andy if he could read us the post that originally inspired this episode. You can follow along through the link in the show notes.
2: I walked through Cincinnati down an empty street and a woman came rolling up to me in her wheelchair yelling, hey, Subway is giving away free sandwiches till noon. I smiled and nodded, but I did not go get a free sandwich because I was not hungry. I walked through over the Rhine careful to not disturb folks sleeping along the sidewalk. A man dripping with sweat stopped me and asked me for a cigarette, but I did not have any. God damn it, he yelled, and so I apologized and thought to myself that when I walk around a city, the least I could do is make sure to have some cigarettes. The bitter spasms we have lived through these last few months and years have made me tired and silent. I feel mesmerized by the bad news of it all. It feels like the heat of these modern summers might be enough to defeat us, or at least some of us, and the proof is in the hot house of these streets. No one around here cares what your Enneagram number is. Frankly, I don't think I care much either. It's kind of a relief to find out that our future is not found in the results of personality tests. We are so desperate to know ourselves. We're desperate for wisdom because it seems very clear that in these times no one actually knows what to do. But I went walking through Ohio and I did meet some people who knew what to do. A couple in their 60s who fostered a little boy and eventually adopted him. And they found out, not for the first time I'm sure, that love is not a thing that can be borrowed or given and then taken back. What is it the killers sing? The kingdom of God is a pressure machine. If you decide to love, you will be hard pressed on every side by scarcity of all kinds. True lovers in this world defy the scarcity of grace in the cities of these temporary kingdoms by telling their neighbors the good news of free sandwiches, who reject the view that the good life is made up of convenience and pleasure and utilitarian expedience. Take heart, you are not an Enneagram number. You are a transcendent being looking for a decent grilled hot dog and a piece that passes all understanding, both of which are available almost anywhere you look.